Advanced Principles Podcast, or app, was created to be an outlet for like-minded individuals to share in the broader conversations on leadership, retail market updates, and incredible personal success stories. On app, you will hear a collection of stories from the titans of the retail industry, as well as thought and practice leaders covering the spectrum of the economy. Please click the subscribe button and look for the newest episodes to be released. To demonstrate what kind of bonds we're buying, what kind of stocks we're buying. So I think it really speaks volumes to the business that you've created. Dealers asked us, you know, look, can you guys manage onshore reinsurance trust account? The U.S. automotive retail reinsurance participation space. On this episode of App, we speak with Chris D.L. from London and Capital, a private wealth management firm based in London, England. Chris is an executive director within the institutional division at London and Capital and joined the firm in 2012 with a regulatory background. Chris acts as a relationship manager for existing institutional clients and is responsible for the development of London and Capital's reinsurance trust business in the U.S., Chris also works with insurance clients in Bermuda and beyond. He regularly travels across North America, meeting with clients and working with insurers to build, develop, and execute bespoke investment strategies. Chris is a graduate from the University of York and holds degrees in economics and law. He also holds the Chartered Insurance Institute's DIP C2 designation and has passed level one of the CFA program. Please join me in welcoming Chris DL. So Chris, that's a fantastic introduction, great bio, and uh, we're really excited to have you on app today. So uh, everyone, please welcome me and join Chris DL from London and Capital uh, to the podcast today. Welcome, Chris. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really pleased to be here and obviously... Feeling very privileged to appear within the first five episodes as well. So yeah, uh, yeah no, looking forward to it. Good, good. Well, we're very excited. So uh, we'll dive in. I'm sure that there's a lot of information that we want to cover, a lot that our listeners will have a lot of interest in, and certainly some things that I'm looking forward to learning about you and the business model as well. So um, as we just kind of unpack, give us a little bit of background on yourself, let people know who you are, um, where you came from, your background, and how you got into the role that you're currently in. Yeah, okay, great. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. You could probably guess that from my accent that I'm not from Arkansas, but um, <laughs> but my I'm not sure my professional journey is, is the most riveting, but I'll, I'll give it a shot anyway. So you could probably tell I grew up in the UK, born and bred uh, here here over in, in England. Um, when I was 14, actually, we had the opportunity as a family to move to the US. So I actually spent my formative years, I guess, in the, in Miami, in Florida. Um, so um that was really where my my love of America uh, was was uh, was really incorporated. So um, you know, it's an experience that has actually, I, I think, looking back, influenced my career so far. I guess when I was eighteen, I, I took the tough decision to leave the US and head back to the UK for college, and um, it was a blow that was probably softened by the fact that my parents remained in Miami for another four years. So uh, between school breaks and things like that, I was still able to come back and enjoy, enjoy the fantastic weather. And I wasn't uh, completely surrounded by the gray clouds of England, but yeah, university in, in the UK, I studied economics up in the North of England um, in one of our sort of most ancient cities, I guess, York. Um, and in the UK colleges are only three year courses, but I specialize. So you specialize from day one, 
um, and I specialized in economics. So it's thrown into the deep end a little bit, but, um, but at the end of the three years, I had a, a really great time and I had a degree in economics. Wasn't sure what they wanted to do with it. That was the only problem. Um, at the time, uh, I, was, I was pretty happy, pretty content to, uh, to remain as a student. So I decided to spend, spend another couple of years uh, doing a postgrad uh, sort of degree in law. Uh, although saying that, I, I quickly realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life as an attorney. So, um, so I thought about how else I could put that education to use, good use and um, ended up working for one of the financial regulators here in the UK, uh, which seemed like a pretty, a pretty decent fit given my background. After a few years there, I really wanted to understand how the other half lived and worked and so went across to the private sector. Ryan, you'll know this story well, but at the time, William, who's my father and the founding partner of, of the institutional team at London Capital, was looking for someone to come in and help him work, work with his team, which there was three of them at the time, on a compliance project. So I stuck my hand up and 10 years on, I stuck around until they gave me a proper job. So <laughs> like I said, I've, I've been here for 10 years. William stepped down as partner in 2017. But I think many of your listeners will probably you know, appreciate and understand that working directly with, with my dad over the last, over sort of the first five years that I was at London Capital was a fantastic experience, something that I didn't necessarily expect to happen, but something has really shaped, shaped my views on, on how we put clients first and the importance of building long-term relationships and all of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but, that, but that's how I, that's how I ended up at London Capital. That's how I ended up sort of looking after um, our book, I guess, of, of, of reinsurance business in particular. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a bit of a whistle stop tour, I guess, on, yeah. on how I've gotten here so far. Yeah. Fantastic. Some bounces across the uh, Atlantic a couple of times and uh, a good journey through education and then working with your father that had to be an exceptional treat. So uh, very cool that you guys were able to do that together and, and enjoy that part of your journey um, as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that obviously you see replicated, especially in the, de- the auto dealer space mm-hmm. where there are a lot of you know, family companies. And, and um, I think it's fantastic to see that legacy sort of properly passed down and looked after uh, sort of through, through the generations is really something that I, I personally find really interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. Generational success. It is uh, um, very uh, common within the dealer space. And certainly my son now works for our agency. So we're excited about that. And um, a true gift. There's no question about that. So how did London and Capital find their way into U.S. automotive, retail, reinsurance participation space? Yeah, it's, um, we often get asked, you know, how, how, how the hell do you guys from, from London get over here? Why, why are you managing my money? Why are you interested in this dealer space? And it, to be honest, it's been a bit of a journey for us as a firm and certainly us as a, as a team. As a firm, we have set up Almost 35 years ago now, we were set up in the, in the mid-1980s here in London as an independent wealth management firm. And from day one, I guess, our investment philosophy is really focused on capital preservation and liquidity, which is you know, the, the quite traditional um, focuses in the, in the wealth management space, especially here in the UK. But our, our client base as a firm became international very quickly. And so we've specifically always had uh, US individuals as clients, be them you know, US individuals who are living in, in the UK or Europe who have, you know, uh, a lot of expat needs. They have dual, dual tax reporting and lots of complexities around planning and things like that. Um, and to that point, we've been a SEC regulated registered investment advisor for, for a long time. 
in the early 2000s, we had, um, as a firm, we had an office in, in Miami supporting our private client business specifically in the US. But while we were out there, I guess we realized that there was an opportunity to work with captive insurers, especially captives who are off, or, yes, or domiciled offshore in places like Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Barbados, and, and also further afield in the Caribbean, like Turks and Caicos, a domicile that I'm sure most dealers listening would recognize as one of the premier domiciles for, for reinsurers in general. Those, those small captives, those small insurers, those small reinsurers weren't being particularly well serviced at the time by local investment managers, and many were allocated to expensive investment funds that weren't particularly in su- suited for, for insurers. Our investment philosophy, our investment approach of investing in individual stocks and bonds really resonated. And, you know, the rest is history. I guess we've, we've now built up a team of, of, of insurance specialists um, that have been servicing our insurance clients for, for 15 years. And that really adds to our differentiation today. But in terms of how we got specifically into the dealer participation space, I guess it, we were introduced to it from a... Um, from, from a captive client. So around 2006, we started managing assets for a group captive owned by dealers. So they were doing F&I products. They were uh, also doing reinsurance um, for, for a number of sort of business-related risks. But after four or five years of sort of working with them consistently, delivering our promises, et cetera, you would ask us, you know, look, can you guys manage onshore reinsurance trust accounts? And um, it, that was the first time we'd come across come across that that those kind of FNI businesses. Um, the I guess the reason why they asked is because at the time again the investment options, the returns weren't particularly compelling. And so there was an opportunity to sort of develop something from scratch that have been that had been sort of specifically designed, I guess, for reinsurance companies. So it took us a few years to flesh out what the strategy might look like, the best bank to partner with, the best reporting platform to partner with, et cetera. But it wasn't until 2013 that we were finally able to sort of offer a properly um, integrated and joined up uh, solution for, for trust accounts. So that's how we got introduced to the space. Today, we're managing around 400 reinsurance trust accounts across a number of different insurance providers and things like that. So we've seen a lot of growth um, over the last uh, sort of eight years. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it, that, was, that was kind of the journey into it. Um, and, and I guess it's, you know, classic wealth management in the sense of it's word of mouth, right? So that, that's really how we got into it. And we saw there was a genuine need there for us to solve. Yeah. So from 2013 to now, 400 individual reinsurance captives or, or companies that are uh, held and all by word of mouth. Certainly, you're not in the trade publications. You know, you're not a, a retail institution here in the U.S. that dealers would be aware of, or certainly broadly aware of. So, I think your reputation precedes you in all of those referrals, which is how I got introduced to you, and our dealers are starting to get introduced to you. Volumes to the business that you've created. So, since 2013, how have you seen that landscape? shift. Certainly, I started becoming familiar with reinsurance and captives and asset management back in 2006. And from 2006, it certainly took a, uh, a leap. But I think the leap from 2013 to now has even been bigger, where dealers are starting to be exposed to the idea of, you know, not just taking what's offered to them off the shelf, whether it's a single line trustee and asset manager in a very retail um, kind of drive up ATM type philosophy, where we're going a little bit more customized, a little bit more bespoke, as you would say, um, and those results are garnering. So what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen since you've entered into the space in 2013? 
Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. I think that's that's definitely aligned to what we've seen as well. I think from a from a structuring perspective, um, I think if we rewind the clock to 2006, there were a lot more group captives, right? There were a lot more dealers sort of banding together. Uh, there was probably fewer, a lot fewer dealers participating in reassurance programs. So you, you ended up with these bigger dealers who were banding together, and that made a lot of sense for them. They've obviously become a lot less common, largely due to a, a lot of the US tax changes that came in around sort of 2017, 2018, with, um, with, with the def- definition of essentially passive foreign corporations changing and, and making, making it less tax efficient. Those offshore captives now need to have a lot more scale. You also need to make sure that the bigger de- dealers aren't sort of dominating the, the premiums and the asset base and things like that. So arguably what we've seen, yeah, is this sort of uh, wave, I guess, of, of individual dealers and dealer groups taking a lot more control over their insurance programs. Um, I think you could probably argue that was a trend that was sort of already coming, but probably accelerated by some of these tax changes. Mm-hmm. And I think you've also seen a lot more you know, agents becoming a lot more astute to, 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 to the options available. Right. So I think, um, there was, there was this, um, there was certainly this sort of dynamic of, okay, well, this is the menu. This is what you can choose. Mm-hmm. And I think dealers are now pushing back and saying, hang, hang on a minute. I, I want to choose something else. My agent uses this guy. I want, you know, whatever it might be. And I think um, in response, we are seeing definitely those insurance providers sort of uh, changing their models a little bit and and sort of becoming a little more flexible. Um, And quite right too. I mean, I think there's no reason why they shouldn't shouldn't encourage more flexibility. That seems like something that that we should be able to accommodate given all the the tech changes that have also happened. Um, And I think to the broader point, if we think about casting our minds back to 2006 when you know the top six of the top 10 biggest companies by market cap were you know oil companies and banks Mm -hmm. and things like that today it's all technology right eight out of ten of those are are technology and this we've we've already gone through you know three major crises in that time the world has changed we've got a lot more scope to be customizable i mean well in 2006 the closest thing we had to an iphone was an ipod i mean that's just unbelievable isn't it yep. the fact that society as a whole we've 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 had this huge exposure to to the internet and which is basically universally uh, available now um and i think most most dealers recognize that you should be able to sort of plug in plug in what they really want in, into their own reinsurance arrangements yeah, it really has become a more globalized world. And certainly you're in one of the most global cities in the world, uh, being in London, and certainly is one of the most international cities that I could imagine. And I do think that the globalization and kind of opening up the blinders for a lot of different dealers looking beyond, um, I think is good. And certainly, I think if we go back pre-2010, certainly even pre-2016-17, um, when you were, like you said, just giving the dealer a menu and saying, here's, here's your sign up fees, here's who's going to be the trustee, here's who's going to be the asset manager. You know, most of those that are being presented to dealers have a business model where dealership participation or reinsurance or asset management of those funds is a rounding error on their balance sheet. So how much attention do they really get? I think one thing that I've yeah. really come to appreciate with London Capital, and certainly I know our dealers appreciate, is that it's a big chunk of the business and it's not a rounding area and it does take a personal approach um, versus some of these other major multi-billion dollar um, commercial banks that just do it as an aside 
Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of dealer reinsurance in London Capital's overall business structure and philosophy. Yeah, good, good, good question. So, yeah, I mean, for, for us as a firm, we're a, we're, we're a specialized firm, right? So we, we, we manage around $5 billion of assets uh, and about two thirds of that is for, uh, you know, tr traditional private client wealth management business. So outside of what we're doing for, for institutions and insurers. So within our team, we manage around $1.4 billion and about four to 500 million of that is for dealers, for dealer owned reinsurance structures. And so it's a really critical part of our business. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it accounts for a lot. We invest a lot of, of money into it, invest a lot of time and energy into, the, into making sure that, that what we're offering is, is still what dealers need. And, um, you know, I, I, th I think, um, from our perspective, we appreciate that that dealers have a lot of choices when it comes to choosing asset managers, and um, and I think that's that's right and that's to be encouraged. And we just talked about actually the fact that dealers do have a lot more choice now, and that's and that's quite right because I'm a firm believer that actually a healthy competitive environment is the best way to ensure the best outcomes for users, consumers, clients, whatever term we want to use. So. I think, um, yeah, the way we look at it is it's a core part of our business. We have built a, built a team here in London that are specialists in this area, be it in insurance, captives, or insurance. Um, we talk about insurance all the time, every day to our clients. And so this isn't just a pool of money to us. We understand that this is here to support a business, and that's the underwriting business. Um, while the investment piece is, is an important part of that, as you quite rightly said, you know, fundamentally, you don't want to blow anything up and you want to make sure that that money is there for claims and all, all, the, all the kind of the good underwriting activity that needs to happen in order to generate the, the, the bulk of the return. So, you know, I, I think our business is a, is a, it takes a unique approach in a couple of ways. So from an investment perspective, we, we invest very transparently. So we don't invest in funds or um, mutual funds or ETFs where we, where we can avoid it. We invest in individual stocks and individual bonds. That means that we can sort of tweak the risk. We can make sure that we are taking the most amount of risk that we can um, in, in accordance with the trust rules, but yet we're not also sort of tripping over that line. Um, it also allows our, our dealers to actually understand what we're invested in, which fundamentally sounds simple, but um, but, but without looking underneath the line of, 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 of the ETFs and the funds that a lot of our competitors use, you'd have no idea. And um, certainly in trust accounts where fixed income is, is the biggest part of, of the allocation, um, investing in the biggest ETF funds just gives you the largest slice to the most indebted companies in the world, which mm. doesn't make, make, make sense for equities where... You've got, you know, I've got a slice of the biggest company in the world, but do you really want to slice the most indebted companies in the world? You know, it, it, you have to be a bit more selective and think through um, that nature. So, you know, buying individual fixed income does, does allow us that flexibility. We're committed to transparency anyway. So part of that is, is creating a, an all-in fee for clients that they really understand it. And I think to your point about service, you know, that, that's absolutely critical for us. And, and to that point, we, we've invested a lot in finding, finding the right reporting partner uh, for us where the clients are able to see their entire portfolios online, practically in real, in real terms, mm -hmm. um, and, and download, download statements that sort of work for them um, and, and create that sort of ease of administration that otherwise, um, that otherwise are lacking perhaps when, when banks send you a PDF statement and you have to pull off all the numbers yourself and all that kind of stuff, right? It's kind of 
make it as easy as for people as possible, right? That's, yeah, that's yeah. And, and dealers don't want to sort through all of that and go through and try to figure out where their performance is. And, and it's a difficult number to pin down anyway, but it's made more difficult by the lack of transparency a lot of these um, retail institutions would uh, provide to the dealers or the overall client. And one, one way that I've coined it up to several of our dealers who I know we've made the trans, uh, transition to you is uh, active asset management versus passive asset management. And like you said, I think a lot of the historical firms have just loaded them up on ETFs or high, uh, high expense mutual funds tied to an index or whatever it is, and then just let it ride. And whatever it is, it is, and they're not making any trades, they're not monitoring the funds because it's just you know a rounding error, like I said, on their balance sheet. I think yeah. your firm takes a very active approach in the asset management. And I think you guys have done an extraordinary job. And I want you to spend just a couple of minutes on it, on those initial consultative calls versus just putting a piece of paper in front of a dealer and say option, you know, A, B or C, which is much like a target retirement fund here in the U.S. with a 401k or something like that. Yeah. Whereas you actually have a conversation, have dialogue with the dealer, understand what they're looking to get out of these funds. Um, talk us a little bit about that and then how that active asset management drives those overall results. Yeah, great. So, yeah. Uh, in terms of in terms of the active active versus passive, I'll come to, come to that in a second. But I think you're right. It all starts with the initial conversation, right? Make sure that 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 clients really understand what we're delivering, and that clients understand what their own objectives are um, for for these funds. Um, part of that is probably trying to succinctly explain what the, the the applicable trust rules, right? Because I think there is a Naturally, there is a temptation for, for dealers to be like, hey, we, why, why have I only got 20% allocation to equities? I want to be high. You know, there are there are there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of rules to, to that, that need to be adhered to when it comes to managing trust accounts in particular. So, you know, talking dealers through what practical um, restrictions there are uh, up front is, is a lot easier than disappointing them. In six months or a year's time, when they're wondering why they why they uh, they haven't got the exposure that they envisage, so I think setting that setting that standard uh, initially is, is absolutely a good starting point. The other thing we like to do is, is find out more about their business. So look at their recent session statements, understand how much cash flow is coming into the reinsurance trust account, understand what you know level of maturity is, that that reinsurance trust account is. Is that is it in runoff? Is it you know, adding, is it growing, et cetera, et cetera. The cash flow piece is, is really critical when you've got um, ins and outs happening on a monthly basis and making sure that, again, to your point, actively managing that, not just buying assets and holding it and, you know, liquidating it willy-nilly when, when, when funds come in, but just trying to actively plan for that. Um, and then I think, yeah, in terms of actually executing it, talking to the client, showing them what a portfolio looks like, demonstrating the, the reporting system and using using a real portfolio to, to philosophy is because I think when it comes to active versus passive, I think one of the things that um, one of the things that, that is easy for, a, for to understand about passive is um, okay, I'm, I'm just buying the S&P 500 and I know how that works because I understand stocks. And I don't need to think too much about it. But what we're trying to do as an active manager is obviously outperform both, you know, whether it's more returns or less risk, we're trying to get a better result for the client than, than, than they would have otherwise gotten from buying a passive strategy. So 
we have you know a couple of invest, you know equity strategies that we implement for clients talking through that what our rationale is getting our head of uh, equity on the call to explain that if necessary and it's the same for fixed income right we have a distinct approach to that we like corporate bonds we like financial bonds we're not huge fans of government debt we're not huge fans of, of long dated bonds all these kind of things trying to trying to explain our rationale trying to get the client to buy into that trying to explain as well what the likely outcomes are so here's here's what a good a good performance might look like during these kind of market conditions we might have a bit of a rocky period whatever it might be but it's managing managing those expectations is is absolutely key to it but also explaining how we are active um, as we get through it um, explaining that stuff again like i said initially up front often is a, a big time saver and um, and also you know sets the expectations properly because i mean the, the other the other point to make i guess is that some clients don't want active management and that's absolutely fine i mean we're, we're not trying to be all things to all men we're just trying to do what we believe um we can do very well in a, in a quite a focused manner yep yep so over the last year and a half, and, and really, I would say the last probably four years, especially in the US market, there's been so much volatility, so many ups, so many downs, so many crazy swings, high and low. Um, how have you been able to manage um, over the overall expectations and results with the dealer clientele? See, it, it, so it, in case if somebody turns on CNBC one morning and they see that the Dow is incredibly down or incredibly up, they think that their portfolio is going to perform exactly the same. And we all know that that's not always the case and very rarely is. So how do you manage those overall expectations when dealers are hearing record high, record high, record high, and it's still a trust managed account that has to be within uh, regulatory compliance and everything else. So how have you been able to, to manage that and respond to the inquiries? Your point. No, yeah, we've got to be crystal clear about how the investment guidelines operate. So what, what is allowable, what isn't allowable, what parts of the markets will generate the bulk of the return for the trust portfolio, what part of the markets are interesting, but ultimately inconsequential, and making sure that actually at the beginning, we explain that and that dealers then aren't surprised when, like you said, the S&P is at record highs and yeah, their account is kind of picking along nicely, but you know, it's not, it's not lighting the world on fire. I think <laughs> applying those two specifics to those two points to the investment environment that we find ourselves in today i think you know we we need to make sure that dealers understand that fixed income performance is actually the biggest driver of returns and unfortunately fixed income doesn't get a look look in on cnbc i mean <laughs> the, the scale of the fixed income market is vastly uh, vastly outweighs the scale of, of the equity market but it's a lot less exciting it's very boring right so um you know, making sure that clients appreciate that actually in the grand scale of things, the fixed income environment, the, the amount of, uh, of yield that you can expect is unfortunately at historic lows. And that's because it, it very much tied in with interest rate and inflation expectations, which again, are sort of rock bottom really. And, and that won't, that won't, that won't be surprising news to anyone, but um, I think there is also an opportunity to zoom out as well. So when you're speaking to the dealer, which is, when you're looking at the whole reinsurance arrangement, dealers are going to be making a lot of their money from underwriting. Mm. Uh, that, that's the performance, of, of course, of, of the F&I products that they're selling. So the investment returns, they're important. They are, um, you know, they can really meaningfully contribute to especially covering the costs of the reinsurance structure uh, on an annual basis. Um, but fundamentally, if, if, if we're blowing it up or the money's not there to pay claims or the money's even worse, not there to pay dividends, 
then we're going to get into hot water, right? And so making sure that, that we're, we're being a, a good, sensible steward for the money while staying within those trust, trust so those regulatory trust guidelines is, is, is critically important. I think for us, uh, when we speak to dealers, I think it's really about taking a step back, trying to understand what their business objective here. It's not, it's not your 401k, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a different risk profile. Um, it, it needs to be treated differently. And certainly the amount of exposure that you can get to risk assets is, is, is much diminished. And so, um, so there needs to be that, that, that kind of, uh, that context, but as you know, Ryan, there are, there are other ways around it, right? So we can talk about the accounts. We can talk about, you know, there are ways to build that exposure, but, but it's about, it's about working up to that, those conversations as, as the reinsurance arrangement matures and as, as those opportunities come up as well. Yeah, and I think I think that brings up a great point. And certainly, over the last several years, um, the dealer the buzz uh, has been you know dealers having access to their their trust accounts day one um, with different DOWC structures, dealer obligor structures, uh, all of that. And, and dealers have this fascination of wanting to hold the reserves from day one and invest it how they see fit, whether it's in uh, cryptocurrency or Coinbase or whatever else it might be. And the long and the short of it is, is, is you said, it's capital preservation because the funds have to be there to pay claims. So there is a built-in necessity to be uh, conservative in the investment nature until it becomes surplus and can be moved to a B account and so forth. Hey, everybody. This is Michael from ADS. Myself and the entire team like to thank you again for listening this week and to Chris for sharing his story about how he got into the industry and speaking about some of the different options available to dealers. Next week, we will discuss his insights on the current market, how the U.S. consumer will be shifting, and his love for America. App is available through Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and our website. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified of the latest episodes.